what it basically emphasizes here is that Jesus is not only doing this willingly, but he has the power to wipe them all out if he wanted to. You know, and that and just his presence is enough. Jesus willingly goes into custody as we continue with life's meaning and purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Throughout John's Gospel, we see the divinity of Jesus brought to light through the miraculous signs and the seven I Am statements. Even John's prologue in chapter 1 sets us up to see Jesus as the Word who was with God in the beginning and who was God, the same Word who took on our flesh. The fact that those who sought to apprehend Jesus fell back when he identified himself demonstrates, as Father Ward points out, the power of his presence and that he was no ordinary man. The mob may have come out in force to arrest Jesus, but the only way they would be able to leave with him was under his own power. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for uh, just another day that we can come together. We thank you for your provision and your protection, and we pray. thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint our time together that you would open our eyes to uh, the incredible uh, events of 2,000 years ago, of all that transpired. And we're only getting a snippet, but we're getting enough, Lord, to really uh, be enlightened as to uh, why we're here and where we're headed and, and why things are the way they are. So we pray that you would continue to bless our study together, help us to appreciate the blessings we have here in this country and the blessings that it is to be a member of Christ's body, your church. We thank you and we ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, so uh, John's Gospel, one of four Gospels. Uh, there are, as we all know, four Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. They're called the Synoptic Gospels, oftentimes. S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, because it's from the, ver- uh, the word that means from the same viewpoint or lens. Synoptic. Similar. Uh, and that's because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, use uh, much of the same source material. And uh, those three Gospels uh, highlight uh, the parables of Jesus. They highlight Jesus' teaching on the kingdom as well as the many miracles that Jesus uh, performed while or did while he was on uh, earth. John's Gospel is different. John's Gospel only focuses on seven key miracles of Jesus. John's Gospel focuses more on interpersonal conversations that Jesus has with individuals. John's Gospel highlights the deity of Christ with the great I Am statements. There's seven of them. You see there's a series of multiple sevens throughout John's Gospel. Uh, uh, Seven is the number of completion. And John's Gospel goes into a lot of personal detail. And the reason for all of this is because John's Gospel was written by the close, one of the closest apostles to Jesus. He was part of the inner circle. P- 
Peter, James, and John were the inner circle, whereas Matthew was written by Matthew, the, the apostle who was a tax collector, certainly very close to Jesus, but not in the inner circle. And then Mark and Luke were written by uh, converts of the apostle Paul. Uh, so they obviously knew the apostles. They, uh, all of these accounts uh, were common to the church, or I should say to the early church, the early believers. Uh, and then they were finally compiled over uh, a number of years. So John's gospel is unique, very personal, set forth in a series of seven, seven signs, uh, miracles that are called signs because they point to who Jesus is, seven I am statements. There's seven divine titles of Jesus. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel are considered the book of signs. But then the last uh, 11, or I'm sorry, last nine chapters deal simply with the night before he was crucified, his death, on Good Friday, and then the resurrection and the subsequent events after the resurrection. So the culmination of, of the Gospels ultimately is Jesus' death and resurrection and then his appearances. That's the climax. Uh, and John's Gospel spends uh, nine chapters on that uh, climax. So today we are looking at John 18, the arrest and trial of Jesus. But again, remember in John 20, the second last chapter of the book, John writes, therefore many other signs, not just seven, but many other signs, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the title of the study is the life, I'm sorry, the meaning and purpose of life, right? And the meaning and purpose of life is found in Christ, the Son of God. Because when we trust in Him, we have life. And this life isn't just uh, eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's John 3.16, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But it's also that we might have abundant life, life of meaning and purpose right now. So Jesus is about not just the hereafter. Jesus is about the here and now as well. And... Um, Getting back to that other important point, isn't it interesting that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at the middle of each of those Gospels, uh, or the kind of the, the hinge for those Gospels, is when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, they said, well, some people say this and that, but then he says, but who do you say they am? The most important question a person can ask is who is Jesus, and of course, the answer is He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He's the living one, the holy one, the righteous one. And by putting our faith in Him, then we are entering into not only ultimate reality, but a personal relationship with the living God, which gives us that life's meaning and purpose and gives us eternal life, an eternal relationship. I mean, is there anything better than that? And so that's at the heart of all the Gospels. But they do it, uh, again, John takes a little different uh, track. Now, this is the uh, obviously the Holy Land, the uh, area of Jesus' ministry, uh, whereas the synoptics focus most of their time in Galilee, uh, G, uh, John's Gospel focuses most of the time in Jerusalem, Judea, and also in Samaria. Uh, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's now turn in your Bibles to John 18. I understand that I do have all the, the scriptures right in front of you. So, I mean, you could just look at the notes 
as we go along, but uh, I always like to have us open the Bible, especially in case I decide for you to reference another uh, passage. Now remember from last time we gathered, John 17 was the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father. And recall that He first prayed for Himself, highlighting His unique relationship with the Father. And remember, He said eternal life is to know God and to know His Son, Jesus. That's eternal life, that relationship. Then He prays for His disciples that are present, and then He prays for the disciples who will become disciples because of the disciples there. He prays for future believers. He prays for us. But the nice thing about that prayer and you can get the notes. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have them reproduced time, but we'll get them to you. Um, the nice thing about that prayer is it's really a framework for the Christian life and what should be true about us as believers, about us as the body of Christ, and what our focus is, our focal point should be. So whereas the Lord's Prayer is a foundation and a blueprint for our prayer life, it is not the end-all be-all. It's really only a springboard to now Jesus's priestly prayer because when jesus gave the lord's prayer that was at the beginning of his ministry but now he gives this high priestly prayer and he probably is doing it in the temple area with his disciples because they he had done the last supper with or he had been with them with the last supper to celebrate the passover he shared some teaching with them after uh, judas left he then gives them teaching that we read in uh, 14 and 15. We don't know if he might have was also teaching along the way as they were headed towards the temple when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. That's in John 15. Uh, because the temple was open. It was one of the few times that the temple was open at night. It was Passover week. So he was engaged with them. We don't know where exactly he did the prayer on their behalf. But then after the prayer, they're moving away from the temple and they're going through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is near the Mount of Olives, which you can still see today. So let's, that's where we pick up chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, that prayer, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which He entered with His disciples. So Jesus... Often, we're told here in John, and he would know, that's why uh, Judas kind of figured out where Jesus might be. Jesus and his disciples often spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane. They probably spent time just to kind of be recharged and in prayer, maybe just to relax, to rest, uh, just to kind of get some shade. And so Judas knew that. So Jesus goes to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's not mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane here, but we know it's the Garden of Gethsemane from the other Gospels, in which he entered with his disciples. Verse 2, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So, basically, Judas is in cahoots with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, those folks, the elders, the scribes, all the, all the honchos. And they're sending their temple guards along with Roman soldiers. And so there's a, just a whole host of, uh, we don't know how many, but it's a good number of folks. It's basically like a mob. And they're looking for Jesus. And so Judas is like, hey, I think I know where he is. So 
in verse 4 we read, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? So they're coming in this dark, right? And they've got uh, the swords and they've got the lanterns and they're all coming. We've seen the movies, right? Or depictions of it. And what's, what John highlights here is that Jesus is doing this as part of the Father's plan. That this has all been orchestrated. That Jesus knows what He's doing. He's not hiding. He's not fighting them. He's willingly allowing Himself to be arrested. He says, whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I'm He. And Judas also, who was betraying Him, was standing there. And so when He said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. So, now this is uh, an aspect that isn't found in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they all fall to the ground, but it highlights the power that was emanating from Jesus. Remember, John's Gospel highlights the deity of Christ. Not that the others don't emphasize it as well, but John does in, in a more detailed fashion. He he brings those uh, uh, characteristics and events from different uh, time or different uh, events uh, to highlight that. And so they're all, they all fall down. And what it basically emphasizes here is that Jesus is not only doing this willingly, but he has the power to wipe them all out if he wanted to. You know, and, that, and just his presence is enough. It's like being slain in the Spirit. Some of you may have had that experience. If you don't know what slain in the Spirit is, it's the term is that when you're coming up to the Lord, you just all of a sudden, you, you have no control. You just go back. You just go down and you can just feel the Holy Spirit move in you. And so in a sense, they were slain in the Spirit there. Maybe not all of them. Maybe they were just tripping over themselves. But I do think that because in light of the perspective of John, it's highlighting that power coming forth from Jesus. And then... He allowed him to get back up. And he says to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus and the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. They probably couldn't believe it. So easy? I mean, that's why they were coming with Roman soldiers, right? Not just temple guards. Not just the uh, uh, leadership of the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin. So if you seek Me, let these go their way. So the one condition Jesus had though, was to let the disciples go. Now, this is interesting. I can see now why, too, John highlights the point that they all fell because of Jesus' presence. Because that would motivate them not to arrest the disciples. Because they're saying, hey, wait a minute, this guy has a lot of power. If we monkey with the disciples, maybe we won't really get him after all. So notice that Jesus says, just let the disciples be. And the neat thing about this, and, and I'll highlight it more in just a moment, is that even in the midst of Jesus getting arrested, we see His compassion and His concern for those men that were with Him, His disciples. We see His compassion for those who were present even. When He heals the servants the high priest's slave's ear, right? And we see the sovereignty of God, that this is all under God's control, that He's willingly doing this. And so let's continue. Uh, verse 9, to fulfill the word which He spoke of those whom You have given Me. 
Remember, Jesus prayed this prayer. Of those whom you have given me, Father, I am not going to lose one. The only one that is lost is Judas. And that's the reason why he was lost, is he was really never one of them in the first place. Verse 10, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. See, another important detail that John would know because he was there. Now, what's really neat? Oh, well, wait, let me just see. In verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, that statement of Jesus is not found in the other Gospels. But what does that statement emphasize? That statement emphasizes that, again, he has to do this. He's here to please the Father. Now, what do we hear in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Jesus prays before this happens, and we don't have that the, in John's Gospel, we don't have Jesus praying and dro- with, like, uh, sweats, uh, sweating like, with drops of blood and all that. And remember, what does Jesus pray? If it be possible, let this cup pass. But here, after he's prayed that prayer, he's accepted the will of the Father. And he says to Peter in response, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, in Matthew, we have Jesus saying also, Put your sword in. Those who live by the sword will also perish by the sword. Because remember, we'll find later when Jesus is before Pilate, he says to Pilate, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus says, talks about the Gentiles, right, earlier on the night of Last Supper, that they seek to lord it over. That's the way of the world, to take the sword and to fight. And so in Matthew's account, we have Jesus rebuking Peter and saying, "Those put your sword back in. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now some people, some, uh, not many, but there are those, oh, well, that, that's a contradiction. No, because in an event, there are a lot of things that happen. And so the Gospels are not going to give you every single blow by blow. The Gospels are going to take different aspects of a particular event and highlight those aspects to make a greater point. So in Luke's Gospel, what we have that we don't have in the others is that not only does Jesus say these words, but what does He do? He heals the ear of Malchus. Demonstrating Jesus' compassion and love, not just for the disciples, but for those who are present. Demonstrating Jesus' power supernaturally and and also demonstrating as we will as an example uh, that his whole life has demonstrated that his kingdom is not of this realm, it's not of this world. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. God bless.